0: Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. You can subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash thedirectorscut. Today's episode is the third and last in our annual series devoted to our popular Meet the Nominees feature film symposium. Now in its 26th year, The event is a roundtable discussion with the directors nominated for the Guild's Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film. This year's nominees include Damien Chazelle, the director of La La Land, Garth Davis, the director of Lion, Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight, Kenneth Lonergan, the director of Manchester by the Sea, and Denis Villeneuve, the director of Arrival. Each of these talented directors were gathered on February 4th at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles to discuss the craft of directing and the making of their films with moderator Jeremy Kagan. So please enjoy part three of our Meet the Nominees special and listen to the five nominees discuss their film's pivotal scenes and dealing with the pressures of directing. Highlights from the conversation include Mr. Lonergan speaking about how he directed scenes with overlapping dialogue Mr. Jenkins, revealing how he helped an actor figure out how to approach a scene on his own. And Mr. Davis, discussing how he resets the energy when things get too heavy on set.
1: Um, question for all, all of you. I wanna talk a little bit about uh, your working with actors on the set. Um, and so I'm gonna pick scenes, and if you could just talk of the language that you use to get the performance. And Denny, I'm gonna start with it. Um, and the one I'm looking at is when she is explaining to her daughter, and Amy's explaining to her daughter, um, that the, the, the issue, I knew something I shouldn't have told them, and, and it ends up with her, you know, what is that? It's unstoppable. Directing a scene like that with the child and with the adult, do you remember how you went about doing it and, and the language that you used to get the performance from both of your actors?
2: But the thing is that it, it's a, uh, I had, uh, at the beginning I had the luxury a uh, uh, thing that I was very afraid of. Uh, it was not VFX for me. It was like the um, or the, the the military scene or that for me it was it was I was not afraid of that. I was afraid to the contact create that uh, in a very short period of time to 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 feel st- uh, the bond of a strong relationship between a mother and and a, and a daughter and to feel that we are we are we are witnessing. Little scenes little glimpse of her life and the, the, what she brought out of this, those moments and, and what she, she experienced as, a, as a human being in that short period of time in a very, very uh, short montage, you know. So I, I uh, in a way, I spent much more time shooting with, with the, uh, the little girls and, and Amy than anything else. And, and, and I asked, asked the, the production to allow me to improvise a lot. To spend a lot of time with them, I, I, we had choose that house. I, it was fantastic because it has also had the quality to have the the, the Saint Lawrence River in front of us. That the, there was a forest behind. There was like a lot of of playground. And so where I'm going is that uh, I had a lot of time. I spent a lot of time with uh, with uh, them, and the camera, and Bradford, improvising and and going through uh, little moments together in order to to. Uh, to have uh, the necessary bound and to have the complicity between Amy and, and Amy, of course, is like, uh, uh, was super generous with, with the kids and, 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 uh, very, very, very comfortable. And she, she, a lot of, uh, moments were, were successful because of Amy, uh,'s participation and generosity. But, um, I would say it's just that those scenes came at the end, uh, because, uh, I needed, like, let's say that the, my little one to be warm, warm up. Is it, does it mm-hmm. make sense to, to be uh, uh, comfortable enough with us and to be, uh, but it, it's all, it's all about then again, uh, about casting because the, the girl, the little one I, I casted, uh, was a natural. She's a, I don't, that's a very mysterious for me. Uh, how come some people seem to be born with that quality and, and, yep. and her, she had, she, she was like, <laughs> totally natural every time I, I could put her in front of the bottle of water and it would be interesting to see her looking at the bottle of water You're lucky,
1: you cast
2: well Long casting, yeah,
1: yeah. Kenneth. There's a number of times in your scenes where there's overlapping dialogue, and it feels like an overlapping dialogue. I'm particularly remembering one when the, um, George and um, Casey and Patrick are, are all talking about, I guess, the boat and whether they're going to buy it or not. It's, fair, it's fairly early on in the experience, but mm-hmm. everybody seems to be talking at the same time. Yeah. And I know that you're a writer who writes. Um, I don't know if this is, was improv or not, um, and I'm interested in how you get that performance um, well, no, it's not improv. That's all written out. Uh,
3: the only improvisation in the movie is at the very beginning on the boat when Casey is improv- improvising with little Ben O'Brien, who plays young Patrick. And that, that, with some suggestions from me, shouted from the camera boat over <laughs> a megaphone. Um, but uh, the rest of the script, the movie is uh, all scripted, including the overlaps. Um, and you, ju- it's just treated like any other scene uh, or any other kind of scene. Um, I remember... We were supposed to shoot that on the wharf, but it was it started to snow, so we moved inside the cabin of the boat, which actually turned out to be a really good decision because i just I just love the confined space and the pressure that they're putting on george uh, They ask him they're asking for help from the boat for those of you I don't know if you know the scene, but then they then Casey asks him if he wants to be Patrick's guardian. Patrick's standing right there, and so is George, and George does not loves Patrick does not want to be his guardian and you just approach it like any other scene i remember telling lucas to make sure you he has to let george off the hook and let make sure that he knows it's okay that it, you don't have to you know i said make sure you thank george for being nice but you, you totally let him off the hook because your uncle is pressuring him terribly so there's like three different kinds of pressure going on in the scene and you kind of just play it like any other scene i try to remember
1: what else we talked about i What's interesting to me, though, is you 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 are giving, just in terms of language or directing actors, you just describe the intention of what that dialogue is about. Oh yeah, but
3: that's but that's all. That's what's left for the director to do. I mean, the the hopefully you've left room in the dialogue for the actors to do some to to do you know everything really, Um, and then if you if there's any help you can give in the scene, it's to try to tell it's to try to uh, impart to the cast elements in the scene that they might not have seen that might not they might not have recognized they're bringing in lots of things that you didn't recognize that's why that's why they're there right. and then occasionally if there's an element that you feel is important or helpful you you bring it up and I try to bring it up in a utilitarian way um, uh, I might say also to Lucas I think I said you know this is the very first time you've heard about this Boston plan so I think that's a possible not a great direction but I think I think that's a big surprise to you I might say if I was if I was smart, if I was stupid, I would say, have a bigger reaction, which would put some <laughs> pressure on him. But, a, but a, a more experienced actor doesn't mind if you say something like that. They can they can translate, they, they don't need you to trick them. Um, but, um, so yeah, that's all. That's what I'm mostly interested in, is like the interplay between the people in the room uh, and what's, what's happening. And that's a nice complicated three-way scene because Casey's trying to control the whole situation, which is what he's trying to do all the time. And, and as it becomes more and more emotional, Less and less easy for him to control his environment uh, until it becomes impossible. And uh, everybody's the other two are kind of stepping over each other to be considerate, but neither of them likes the way the conversation's going. Did you
1: have any rehearsal time at all before your shooting?
3: Oh yeah, I had. I, I I had we rehearsed for about two weeks. Uh, not everybody in the same room at the same time, but m- most most combinations. Um, and
1: for you, the value of the rehearsal?
3: Well, you know, I have a theater background, so I can't. Quite imagine how you would. I, I'm, I'm dazzled by the performances that, that that you know Barry gets, for instance, without rehearsing. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how it's done. Literally, I don't know how it's done. Um, but uh, and and other other filmmakers who don't rehearse, I don't know how because I, I just can't conceive it. Um, but uh, maybe it's not. Maybe maybe there's something to learn there too. And
1: if, as you look at the rehearsal period since you had that and you come from the theater background how things for the performances what would you notice the value of the changes that would happen through rehearsal would you feel and and to some degree because some people use rehearsal periods to actually allow the actor to discover things that are not in the script absolutely it's both
3: I mean you want you want it's a it's you know it's you you want to suggest things without locking them down, and you want to. For me, it's a question of getting getting everyone oriented in the same in the same direction, or or, or understanding just kind of what's happening in the room as best as best we can, and then then backing off, and let and using that as a foundation, not as a not as a confine, but as a as a as a springboard. Uh, and and you know, o- often the actors won't. Discuss what they're going to do or how they're, you know, they have questions, but they're not going to tell you all their ideas like you might tell them that you're, like I might tell them my ideas, you know. They're the ones who have to act, so they don't need to explain anything to me. They just need to, they just need to be fueled and and whatever they have to offer needs to be given permission to come out. Uh, and 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 you know, i I always find the most interesting thing is whatever's happening, whatever organically happens between the two actors or the three actors, that it's not. It's not one person's emoting. It's my reaction from what you're giving me. Um, and and I feel people in real life are really sensitive to each other, whether they're sensitive people or not. You're very People are very aware of what's happening and are very attuned to what's happening in the room, even if they can't identify it necessarily. I mean, if I was to get angry right now, it would make the entire room uncomfortable. Or if I, or if I were to make you angry, you would suddenly, we would all be, everyone would be very tense. And that's, that's a very small example of the kind of... Uh, Waves we are all sending off and receiving all the time, and so trying to identify what those waves are in a situation in a scene, and not saying that's where it ends, but that's where it begins, and then letting the actors
1: kind of take off from there. Well spoken, well spoken, Damien. I want to talk about a particular scene that um, where the two of them, ha- it's the dinner scene that ends up in the fight scene. Um, What is the language that you use to, and I don't know if you had rehearsal time where you had to do that the day of, but um, that you use with your actors to get the performances that you got, particularly because that scene evolves.
4: Yeah, I mean, that was the one scene where we shot with two cameras um, uh, shooting simultaneously, cross-coverage. And, uh, you know, because otherwise, the rest of the movie was these sort of, uh, basically a series of wonders, more or less, um, um, where even the non-dance numbers needed to be kind of choreographed. And blocked um, here, it was about kind of having all of that movement just come to a standstill, you know. And um, and so the the it kind of put even more pressure, I think, on on Ryan and Emma to uh, to deliver that scene because I knew that you know we all knew that the only way it was going to be shot was again with two medium reverses, and then we would cut in close for two close ups, and once we were close, we would never go back. Um, and that was it. And the whole scene had to live in those four setups. And uh, you know, I, I had it was a scene I'd spent a lot of time writing, you know. Um, and then, and then, as soon as Ryan and Emma came on board, a lot of that, a lot of that writing went out the window because you know we would start actually running the scene and realize something here wasn't working, or something here actually could serve to be augmented. Sometimes they would just improvise the scene, and I would. Uh, Transcribe and then go back and look at what I liked and curate, you know, sort of pull um, certain things and re-rewrite the scene and give it back to them. So we, we did a lot of sort of workshopping of it, I guess, in prep, um, so that by the time they sat down and did it, um, I didn't actually have to say that much. I mean, we were all kind of on the same page, and and you know, it was just kind of go. And we would just because we were cross-cross covering, we could just do full full seven minute takes um, and just run through the entire scene from beginning to end.
1: In their contribution to the scene, since you're saying actually you did a kind of, if you will, a rehearsal as the writing back and forth, what kind of things do you remember were being suggested that said, oh, I hadn't thought, or because you're having a dialogue in sense about that scene before you actually shot it? What stuff was being shifted for you, if anything, or contributed by them?
4: Mm, um, Well, I think, you know, it it was a lot of the, um, it, it wasn't the, the broad strokes, really, it was just more kind of how we would how we would get into things. I knew that I needed the scene to begin um, that I needed to begin in this kind of idealized way, you know. That um, um, and th- that was in the script, you know, that it would begin with with the act of, of Ryan's character cooking a meal for um, a surprising uh, Emma by by being home, having cooked an elaborate meal, setting the table, candlelight. They're sitting down, music is playing. The song that you keep hearing playing is. Is a piano version of City of Stars, which you know they've kind of sung throughout the movie. So everything it kind of seems like it's, it's concocted to be their perfect version of romance, um, and then we're supposed to just watch this thing slowly kind of crumble. Um, and so I think a lot of the work was spent really in the first kind of. The first act of the scene, really, you know, um, a lot of a lot of the improvisation was was there because a lot of that was had to be kind of come directly from their banter, their chemistry, and that was something that again I'd written to a certain extent, but needed to be discovered through rehearsal. Needed to be kind of needed to be a somewhat organic process, um, yeah. and um, and they needed to kind of have the freedom to like. So some some takes we would do that. They would they would live in that kind of period of time much longer. We would sort of expand that period of time, and then. Um, and then shave it in the editing. But um, you needed to feel the love there in the beginning um, because you also know that, you kind of know, I think, as soon as, I don't know, the green light, I think, kind of tells you, at least in my mind that, that uh, and just everything about it tells you that it's going to go south. So there's a suspense, actually, to, to hmm. you know, it's like Hitchcock always had this wonderful way of describing kind of you know suspense versus surprise. And, and he always used the example of two people sitting at a dinner table talking to each other. And, and the surprise is that you know, uh, you, they're talking to each other the whole time, and it's very chummy, and then suddenly a bomb explodes, and you're shocked, and there was a bomb in the house. and The suspense version is you just put an insert of the bomb under the table at the yeah. beginning of the conversation, and then you just watch them. And then you can watch them talk chummily for a very long time. And you're, you're like this, and it doesn't matter what they're talking Did about. Did you
1: feel the bomb in your, this case was the green?
5: The color?
4: No, no, I th- <laughs> not necessarily. But I, I think the bomb was just that—that um, that, you know, I like the tropes of certain kinds of storytelling. That you know, sometimes you, you can kind of you can you can build up this sense of uh, if things have been too chummy for too long, something is going to something is going to deteriorate. And the amount he,
3: of the trouble he took to make the dinner tells you something's going some, to go wrong. Exactly. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> good, good, good. That's
4: exactly it. If you. If you Laying it on too thick in any area is gonna um, is gonna breed trouble, um, and um, and and the formality of it. I think that was the other thing that this was a movie actually where they're, until then, every scene you've ever seen with them is in a two shot, you know, and or long takes or where they're crossing around each other and the camera's swirling around them. So, it's it's a it's a long take, wider shot movie, and suddenly suddenly it's like another movie. Suddenly they're separated and they're talking. Um, in reverse shots, and it's just not, it's not the language of the movie that we've been used to. And suddenly we're talking and talking and talking. I mean, I want, that was part of why the scene needed to be long. and needed to feel like a set piece. Got it. got it.
1: Um, Garth, the, um, there's so many scenes that I'd like to know about, but I'm gonna ask it really about the last scene with Dev and his mom, his Indian mom, when they meet, and what kind of language you used. The performance of the mother, personally, is astounding for me, and the, you know, the movie in many ways is about that moment. What dialogue, what ways of directing your actors did you use to get what you
6: got? Uh, Well, uh, that was a big day. Um, First of all, I separated the actors for a week. So I made sure that Dev didn't speak to Priyanka, who was playing the mother. They were very close, we did a lot of rehearsals where they were building a strong relationship um, and they became very close Um, but when we were approaching that that scene we had to shoot I said you're not allowed to see each other. Um, Also Dev had never seen her through her makeup either and I just thought it was such a sacred real moment it just couldn't be, you just couldn't dramatize it. You know for me it had to feel, you had to prepare the actors as much as you could to the stages that were out in the story and then just allow the moment to be you know like you were saying their moment really. So to do that was tricky because it was a long, complicated meeting um, of of Saru coming around the corner and, and is that his mother? Isn't it his mother? So I had a strong sense of how how the staging could be, um, and I decided to rehearse it um, with the not the actors, just camera rehearse with um, the DOP and the AD, and um, and the, the two, we had two cameras, and basically just treat it like an event, like we're about to shoot an event. Um, so we rehearsed the cameras about three hours, like just blocking and getting feelings and even the two handle cameras had to cross over and take over other singles. It was We had this whole plan right. and, um, and then I wanted to shoot it um, a little bit late light, not too romantic, but just to feel like it's trapped in time. It's like we shot it all day, I wanted to feel that sense of time, like we we're witnessing something that was happening in a moment. So, um, my AD was terrified. Absolutely couldn't believe that we were basically trying to shoot the scene in two hours, you know. But I said, it's it's all, you know, I think it'll be over in two hours. The other thing that I was interested in, which came from Saru's memoir, is just the the idea that when he arrived at the village, this curiosity started when he arrived, this um, Western Indian guy kind of coming back, and the word of mouth spread very quickly. So, it was like energy. It was like he met one person, then he'd walk, and there'd be more people. And he walk, and there'd be more people. So for me, it was a very metaphysical scene as well. So through the staging of all of it, I had to, you know, just I kind of released certain more extras into the scene, and had to make sure that was happening as well as we were shooting. This was Dev's first scene, as well, Um, and he was absolutely very, very anxious. And uh, what we realised is that was good. I mean, Saru would have been anxious you know he he would have been going through these exact emotions so I said this is fantastic you're feeling this way this is uh, you should use it and um, mm-hmm. so I don't know and then the rest was just up to the actors and we
1: what did you say to her do you remember
6: uh, I didn't say anything to her really I mean it's pretty she's a mother as well so she could very quickly imagine the pain of not having a son um, or have a son missing for so long and I think Uh, She just had to witness. She just had to be in the moment. It was quite simple. Um, Hmm. And then uh, we just had had no cameras, no lighting, and we just walked with Dev and walked with her. And um, created magic. And off it off it went. Yeah. Um,
1: Barry, the scene at the beach with the two boys. How did you how did you shoot it?
6: Yeah, because
1: as as you said, it was one of the scenes that you even tested for them to
5: get the part. Well, and and it was, there's always in any production, there's that one scene that everything is kind of like this train is hurtling towards, and that was the scene for us. Um, It's the most intimate scene in the film, and yet it required the largest production footprint, because we're out on the beach in the middle of the night. We had this huge moon rig. Um, We didn't realize this at the time, but... The time that we shot, we thought, oh, we'll have all these great lights. We're like right off the beach. There's all these hotels and all these condos. But these sea turtles come in to mate, and, and, and they get attracted to the light, so they won't go back out. So when we shot that scene, all the lights were off. So we had to supply every lumen of light that was out there. So there's just like grips, and this, and that. It's just all this shit. And I have the most intimate scene in my film. We are loud. They are quiet. Um, And and it was important for me, I've been saying that, you know, I am straight, Jerome McCraney is gay, the main character in this film is gay. To me, this was one of those scenes I didn't have a first person perspective on, so I wanted to preserve it from the source material. So as a director, this was one of the few times where the the director can't override the writer. I was like, I'm gonna keep this guy's scene the way it is. And we got there and James got the light up, it was beautiful. And I already started to have this idea of these hands in the sand. And uh, like, like with everything, we got behind on time, so it was actually kind of cool. We did a bunch of French overs, and we did French turnarounds. So sometimes you think the cameras moved, but we just moved them. It was like really cool sh- that we did to get through the shooting schedule that night. Um, and I remember Jarrell Jerome, who plays Teen Kevin, was, he was very concerned with how to perform this part, and you have different languages for different actors. And with him, it was always about figuring out where he directly overlapped with the character. So we started talking while while all these grips, these macho men, are walking around. We're talking about first sexual experiences, yeah. and uh, you know, we talk about you know, are you a virgin? Not, not a virgin. How'd you lose your virginity? Blah. blah, blah. Were, were you guys the same experience? Were you more experienced? Blah, 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 all this stuff. And then we bring it back to the characters, and he says, "Is this the first time uh, Kevin, his character, has kissed another man?" I go, no, it's not the first time Kevin has kissed another man. He asked me, is it the first time Sharon has kissed another man? I love it when an actor can find the answer themselves, so I don't say anything. One, one thousand, two, 1,000, three, 1,000. Oh, Sharon has never kissed anybody. I go, yes, Sharon has never kissed anybody. You're going to be tender and help him through his first experience, because you've already been there. And from there, it was on. I, I had to do nothing. He, he carried the scene. What about first, did you say
1: to Cheryl? No,
5: he ca- Ashton was terrified, right. and, and, and Jarell's, uh, Jarell Jerome's role then was to help him be calm, to take him through the tension, to take him through the anxiety. It was the perfect match of, I pressed one button, then as a director, I got to stand back and let them go through. You know, it, it, was, it, it became my, my favorite night. Wow. on the set. Uh,
1: multiple cameras uh, that, for that?
5: No, this was single, single camera cameras the whole way through, which is why we did French turnarounds. Got it. And, and how
1: many in on that, the end of that scene?
5: Uh, the end of that scene was uh, a bit hectic. The end of the scene is a, a total cheat. At that point, because the the wind kicked up, we were we were watching the weather, watching the wind, so eventually we had to move the moon rig out, right. and so now we've got like a little blonde with some diffusion on it, oh. and we're just now, we're in here, and... Hand there in the sand. Now we're just this close on the neck and we're tilting. I mean, we had to race because the sun was coming up and we, we could only go there. We'd only be there for one night, but, but we got it. You, you certainly got it. Yeah.
1: Um, my last question, although I got to tell you, if you could guys stay for another three hours, I'd be great, but we have to let our crew go, so we can't have another three hours. But I do have a last question. It's got two parts to it. It's, so it's not really the last question, it's two questions. It's one is, what do you do with the pressure? this is an incredibly pressurized occupation as a director. When you feel it really strong, how do you handle it? And the second is, what did you learn in this picture that you didn't know until you'd finished the picture? Denny, what do you do with the pressure and what did you learn?
2: Uh, <clears throat> Me, I, 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 I learned through, uh, through work that uh, uh, there's a zone, that uh, used to be very uncomfortable and i learned to 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 take the space into i love on a set when there's a tons of pressure and people waiting and we don't have the answer and i i embrace that moment i i just let i accept that i don't have and it's it's very important moment when you don't have it you're not good you're and and it's like a, um, uh it's, it, and it's where the ideas come. You have to, I, I need myself to count. It's an inner process, like to, to calm down and to let, so the ideas will come, but it can come in three hours. So you have, I, I, I'm, I can become pretty autistic on a set. Duncan. <laughs> no, but I shut, shut myself and just think and not knowing the answer and be, o- being open to, uh, suggestions around me. Uh, that can become a chaotic process. Like, it's dangerous, but, uh, uh, that's the way t- I deal with the pressure. I just like uh, accept that. And, and usually the idea comes quicker this way than if I panic and I yell. <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, what I would say. And uh, is
1: is that one of the things you learned from, th- th- from having made this movie, or is there something else that you learned from having made this movie? I will let Kenneth go on and I
2: will think about the, the second part.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can.
3: I just let the pressure roll off my back. How? no i don't I'm <laughs> we were all waiting because we want to know how to do it no that's not what I'm like uh, um i I well you know it's, I have a very similar answer i i you know I think that and I just answer both questions with in in one um i think I think that it's in this with this film I started to learn to incorporate all the things that seemed like negatives and obstacles the first time I tried to make a movie the time pressure the amount of people around the 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 difference but the you know the complete reverse of the experience of writing where you're by yourself and, and if you're writing on spec you don't have any pressure at all except internal pressure to to get out you know to do a good job with what you're trying to do and I think this it wasn't it wasn't um uh, what there' was nothing bad happening but there it was a very intense pre production and a very intense the schedule the it was of the three movies i've done it was the most i would say it was the most stressed and pressured on the set and beforehand just because of the scheduling issues and weather and and time constraints et cetera and uh i think i learn i think Making that all contribute to what you're doing instead of being an obstacle to what you're doing somehow is, is some strange trick of your mind. And I I remember the very first day we shot, which was the scene in the lawyer's office, which was a very big scene, very long scene, very important scene, and the night the night before there'd been some kind of, one of those kind of, I think everyone was just stressed out because we were shooting the next day for the first day, and, and I I had a big fight with somebody, I don't remember even who it was, it might have been everybody. <laughs> And I was in a foul mood when I got to the set, and I remember just consciously standing at the monitor and shutting out everything behind me, and with this kind of laser-like focus that, I, that it's hard for me to achieve usually when there are a lot of people around. And I remember that very vividly, and somewhat maintaining that throughout the shoot, and sometimes with some help from Casey, who's very experienced, who would say, look, we're here to shoot the scene. It doesn't matter how long it take, took to set it up. It doesn't matter if the thing broke. Doesn't matter. None of that matters. Now we're set up and ready to shoot the scene. Let's shoot the scene and let's let's work on it till we're happy. And that 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 reminder and that first day, I think, uh, were really valuable and 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 also how I try to cope with the the pressure. Right, thank you,
1: Damien. The pressure and what you learned by finishing this film.
3: How do you deal
4: with it? Um, well, I mean, I I think that the the thing that and it's maybe something I did learn, especially in a lot of the, the bigger, more elaborate set pieces in this movie, was, was, the, was actually how to kind of um, zone out the size and how to kind of remind yourself or, or, or realize that it, it, at its core, movie making is always the same, you know, that there's some kind of basic idea there that, that I recognize from when I made like home movies as a kid with you know friends in the, in the backyard with like my dad's cheap camcorder and you know and and I remember in those days I would dream of making uh, uh, you know movies as an adult and but I thought to myself obviously once you become once you're professional or once you have to make real movies it's a completely different thing it has nothing to do with the grammar of you know it, and 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 I couldn't really fathom how how real quote unquote real movies were made you know um, uh, and and I think the kind of wonderful thing is sort of now I've made a few films of sort of you know getting slightly bigger uh, with each one in terms of the the footprint you know and the, the the machinery, but that central core idea of a camera, an actor, and you never changes. And um, and there is a way to try to kind of I mean I think in a way it's the challenge, it's the fun challenge of trying to make stuff. Um, I mean it's like really inspired by what Barry was saying about you know you trying to make stuff feel intimate in the midst of all the chaos, you know, Um, and that's kind of the beauty of it, that you can kind of, um, that you watch a movie and and you can have no knowledge of what was just like literally an inch past frame, you know, the right side of the frame and that there's some like, you know, I don't know, some PA there frantically like telling a car to go back (laughs) because they're going to ruin the shot or something and you're just watching this most hushed, intimate moment ever and you have no knowledge of that. That make-believe is the same kind of make-believe that kids do. It, there's, there's a certain kind of uh, innocence in it. There's a beauty in it, you know? Um, and I think it's something that you can preserve and want to try to preserve even, no matter how many kind of um, you know, uh, uh, tricks and, and, and pyrotechnics are kind of going on around you.
1: And when you're pressured?
4: Oh, I mean, when I'm pressured, I guess yeah, I try to oh, kind of focus. remind myself of that. But yeah. um, but you also wind up relying a lot on the people around you. You know, I mean, it's it's I guess that's the other big thing to learn is just uh, uh, sounds obvious, but just that uh, it's it's not just casting, but the casting of your crew essentially mm-hmm. is is the most important thing of all. And you can create that kind of familial bubble if you do that process right. Well spoken,
1: Garth. Pressure, and what did you learn after this, finishing this one? <laughs>
6: Well, uh, uh, maybe I don't want to be a filmmaker anymore. No, um, it's, uh, look, I think it's it's the real trick as a director is how do you um, find the zen of a scene when there's all this chaos around you? How do you find the poetry of a scene um, in amongst all of this madness? And um, that's the real art that I've had to learn through commercials and all sorts of things. But um, one of the things I do is play music. I play music on set a lot. Um, so even when the crew are setting up, I have playlists that, for me, kind of connect maybe to the emotion of the story or to the character or sometimes it might be just completely random but um, I often just play music on the set. I have a very relaxed set, um, very important for me. And also um, silliness and play is a big thing for me. So we might be in a really dark, heavy scene um, and I can tell that maybe we're kind of getting bogged down. So I might just put on some Fleetwood Mac and start dancing with the actors. just try and remind people not to be too serious and just to reset the energy um, so we can just get, then I go, okay, let's get miserable, let's go back and um, get back in there. Um, and it, I suppose, I mean, that's the thing that when you make films, you you have these out-of-body experiences. The stress is so extreme at times. You might have a fight with an actor or it might be that a location falls out or it starts raining and, and you just, I don't know, you just have to trust that maybe this circumstance is gonna make it better. That's how I kind of see it. God. And you just can put one foot in front of the other.
1: Well spoken. Barry?
5: Yeah, I, I try to
6: shoot my way out of it mostly.
5: I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I think of pressure on a film set as it's like an intellectual concept. It's kind of tied to expectations. Like you think the scene should be going a certain way, but it's not. So you feel pressure. So I take it off the table, uh, take the expectation of what the scene should be off the table, and I try to shut down the intellectual part of the endeavor and just go back to instincts, you know. Well, what am I feeling? Where, where do I want to point the camera? And we just point it uh, and start shooting. Um, when we shot the scene where uh, Alex Silbert asked the question of what's a f- that's day three of production for a kid who's never acted. And, uh, and there was pressure because if that scene doesn't work, the movie doesn't work. Um, and so, and James is here. We just stayed in the master for like three hours. And at, at a certain point, we stopped even recording, but we just stayed in the master. Because it's like, all right, you know, right, I'm going to turn my brain off and we're just going to stay in the master until this kid gets there. And, once I, and then I had to explain to him, it's your scene. I went through and showed him all the shots we were gonna do. We're gonna make this your scene, take, take ownership of it. And he did. Um, so I try to take it off the table. It's almost like turbulence, you know? The plane's moving at 500 miles an hour. Eventually, you'll be through the turbulence, you know? So you shut that part of your brain off, go on autopilot, press record. Uh, what, what, what I learned on this film, you know I haven't made a movie in eight years, and uh, I had this the script supervisor, Melinda Taskin uh, she's like six she's in her early sixties and she's done everything much more experience than me. It was a moment where I looked around the set and realized most of these people here have more experience than me and Melinda would talk all the time and at first I was like, oh, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think and then I went like, no i should I should be listening and so I started to listen to her, and she had amazing things to say and suggest, because she was watching everything. And so I think remembering to listen to everyone else um, on the set was the thing I learned the most on this film. And I learned it from a script supervisor, of, of all people.
1: Well, boy, what a perfect segue to end learning to listen. It's been an honor to listen to the five <laughs> of you here. Thank you so much.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to part three of this exclusive discussion. You can watch full video of the Feature Film Symposium on our website at dga.org slash events. Check out past episodes of The Director's Cut by subscribing on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.